You know, when we talk about spiritual formation, we are ultimately talking about the process whereby a person moves toward maturity in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the burden of this talk has been simply to say that we will have a hard time getting to this teleos in Christ, complete in Christ, without taking more seriously the body, without taking more seriously the brain, and without taking more seriously interpersonal communion, not just knowing, but being known. Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today, we have part two of a talk from the CPT conference that Dr. Todd Wilson shared in 2018 entitled The Integrated Pastor. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's just the episode immediately previous to this. But Todd, as we get back into the talk here, you start sharing a lot about theological anthropology and its significance for pastoral ministry and personal and pastoral formation. Yes, That's not a term you hear a lot of pastors using regularly in their staff meetings (laughs) or in their sermons, but... Is that what gives? Yeah. What, what's what's the deal? Yeah. Great question. Great question. I use the term not to 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 use a big phrase or big terms, fancy terms, uh, but to communicate something really important. The insight that I wanted to communicate is that every approach to spiritual formation, which pastors do talk, do talk a lot about, about, about and congregations do, and churches do, and we ought to care about, every approach to spiritual formation assumes or presupposes a theological anthropology, an understanding of what it means to be a human person made in the image of God. So I want to use that phrase to, to highlight the fact that if we're going to think well about spiritual formation and making disciples who make disciples, we need to think first about what it means to be a human being, that is to say, theological anthropology. Great. All right, let's get right back into the talk for the second half of The Integrated Pastor. I want to take just the last few moments that I have and what remains, and let me just offer a sketch of what that might look like. I hope it's not going to be too sketchy, but let me offer a sketch of what I think that could look like. If we want to move toward a more integrated approach to spiritual formation, I think we need to take at least the following three steps in evangelical spirituality as we think about spiritual formation. These three steps. We need to take the body more seriously. We need, excuse me, we need to take the brain more seriously. And thirdly, we need to take interpersonal communion more seriously. Step number one, take the body more seriously. If evangelical spiritual formation is going to be more integrated, we have to take the body more seriously, these physical bodies. Not long, I don't podcast very often, but I, I, I did listen to a podcast, a talk that was given uh, not too long ago. It was a chapel message by a very well-known pastor at a very well-known seminary. And the message was about how to make the most of your seminary experience. And it was a fantastic inspiring, stimulating, challenging, illuminating talk. And the talk was really kind of focused on what is the essence of spirituality? What is the essence of spiritual formation? Talking to all of these seminarians in seminary. And it was a beautiful exposition and application of glorifying God with your education and delighting in God through seminary and finding joy in Greek and Hebrew syntax and developing your mind by reading great books and so on and so forth. 
and I was reveling. But near the end of the talk, I think because I had this talk on my mind, the thought occurred to me that this is a great vision of spiritual formation, but you don't need a body for any of it. It could have been an audience of angels, and it would have been just as applicable. Every approach to spiritual formation presupposes some understanding of the human person, of theological anthropology, is underneath, whether it's a well-thought-through one, whether it's a biblical and theologically substantive and faithful, underneath every approach to spiritual formation is a theological anthropology. And what is the dominant theological anthropology of evangelical Christianity? It is, I would suggest, dualism. Dualism. A dualism of mind and body, of inner and outer, of spiritual and physical. It's a dualistic anthropology that is, as best as I can tell, indebted to the monumental influence of Augustine. And I don't like doing any Augustine bashing, but I'm going to just do a little gentle kind of tweak here, right? But let me do it this way by quoting Christian philosopher Nancy Murphy, who puts it this way, and I think exactly right here. She says this, quote, It is in fact the case that most Christians throughout most of their history have been dualists of one sort or another. And so most Christians, not just within the evangelical tradition, but Protestantism and Catholicism and, and perhaps Orthodoxy, most Christians have assumed that, per, that a person has essentially two parts, a, a soul or mind on the one hand and a body, an inner part and an outer part, a spiritual and a physical. And Murphy notes that we owe this dualism, we owe this inward emphasis to the great 4th century bishop and theologian Augustine. She writes this, quote, Augustine has been the most influential teacher on these matters of mind-body dualism because of his legacy in both Protestant and Catholic theology and because of his importance in the development of Christian spirituality. Augustine's conception of the person, she writes, is a modified Platonic view. A human being is an immortal soul using a mortal body. And so she then adds... From Augustine to the present, we have had a conception of the self that distinguishes the inner life from the outer. And spirituality, listen to this, has been associated largely with the inner life. Or here's the great Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor on the same point, making the same point. He writes this in his, his, his massive Sources of the Self. Quote, on, this is the opening paragraph of his chapter on Augustine and Sources of the Self. Quote, on the way from Plato to Descartes, both dualists, Plato and Descartes, stands in the middle of Augustine. Augustine's whole outlook was influenced by Plato's doctrines, Charles Taylor writes, as they were transmit, transmitted to him through Plotinus. He could liberate himself from the last shackles of the false Manichaean view when he finally came to see God in the soul as in material. Henceforth, for Augustine, listen to this, the Christian opposition between spirit and flesh was to be understood with the aid of the platonic distinction between the bodily 
and the non-body. And so you see what happens. Augustine's modified Platonic dualism gets connected to the Apostle Paul's way of talking about spirit and flesh. And Western Christianity has never been the same since. Or at least our understanding of spirituality and spiritual formation has never been the same since. As Charles Taylor puts it, Augustine is always calling us within. And that is the impulse of evangelical spirituality, I think. So let me try to summarize it this way. Augustine's dualistic anthropology leads, I think, very naturally, very naturally, to a disintegrated spirituality. An approach to spiritual formation that focuses on the mind and not the body, on the inner person and not the outer person, on the spiritual and not the physical. But if we want to move toward a more integrated spiritual formation, one that promotes integration, then I think we really need to scrutinize this dualistic anthropology we've inherited. We need to ask ourselves whether it really is the most biblically faithful, theologically sound way of understanding what it means to be a human being, or are there better ways to conceive of the person that are more in line with Christian commitments to embody the goodness of creation and the goodness of materiality? Step two is this. We need to take the brain more seriously. Taking the body more seriously, our first step leads, I think, naturally to the second step, which is to take the brain more seriously. We obviously won't take the brain seriously if we're not taking the body seriously. But once we take the body seriously, it seems to me that we will naturally and inevitably need to think concretely about what it means to take this material body seriously in the task of spiritual formation. And I think that will lead us to take the brain more seriously. So that if we want to move toward a more integrated spiritual formation, then we need to take our brains more seriously so that spiritual formation, check it out, is brain formation or reformation. And yet, for how many of us do we think brain when we hear the word spiritual formation? That's like the question on the SAT, like which word doesn't belong? You've got, you got four words, prayer, Bible study, fasting, and neural networks. Like, which doesn't belong? I mean, isn't that right? Like, the brain isn't even a category in conversation about spiritual formation. But it should be. Because when you stop and think about it, the brain, listen to this, underwrites everything about our spiritual formation. Our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, the brain, your brain, my brain, is underwriting all of it. And so let me put it provocatively. There is no spiritual formation without brain formation or reformation. I recently came across an illustration that I think really drives home how the brain underwrites these things. I want to give you advance warning that it's a bit of an awkward and troubling story, but it is incredibly powerful. It's a true story. When I tell you, you'll be like, that can't be true. It's a true story. You can look it up on the internet. It's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Famously said in the era of fake news, right? I saw it on Twitter. (laughs) 
Actually, I found it in Malcolm Jeeves, the retired neuroscientist from the University of San Andrews, his book on neuroscience. And then I wanted to confirm it, so I did find it on the internet. But if you want to see the story from Malcolm Jeeves, it's in his book on neuroscience, for the record. It's not false, (laughs) fake news. Back in 2000, as a 40-year-old man, a Virginia high school teacher who was arrested for making sexual advances towards his stepdaughter. His wife had to call the police to come and arrest him because he was making sexual advances toward his stepdaughter. And when the police arrived, they found that he had been, for some time, collecting pornographic magazines and visiting pornographic websites. His hard drive was full of pornographic websites. So he was brought up on charges, and he was convicted, and mercifully, he was required to attend a mandatory 12-step recovery program for sexual addicts rather than going to prison. But the problem was he failed the 12-step recovery program because he couldn't stop making advances at the other people in the program. So he had to go back before the judge to be sentenced to now do jail time, but The day before he's going before the judge to receive his sentence to do the jail time, he drives himself to the emergency room complaining of a raging headache. The doctors do an MRI and discover that he has an egg-sized tumor on his right frontal lobe of his brain. So they operate on him and remove the tumor, and lo and behold, The lewd behavior and the pedophilia went away as well. And then about a year later, the tumor started growing again, started coming back. And so too did the sexually inappropriate behavior. So they operated again. And once again, after the operation, after the elimination of the tumor, the illicit desires went away again. It's a true story. It's a fascinating story. And here's the point. It tells us something about what it means to be a human being, doesn't it? About how dependent we are, not just on our bodies, but let's speak concretely, on our brains. Think about how closely tied together morality and personality are in the story. How a damaged brain can bend behavior. How an otherwise moral guy can do some really immoral things if his brain isn't working rightly. Some of you here today will know that my wife Katie and I have seven children. We have three biological children and four that we have adopted from Ethiopia. The two youngest adopted children are twin boys. We adopted them when they were very young, just six months old. The other two we adopted when they were a little bit older They were six years old and eight years old. The twins are now nine, and the other two are now 11 and 13. And let me just say, as you can imagine, that seven children is a wild ride. And having four adopted children adds to the wildness of the ride. We have learned an awful lot over these years about parenting and families and adoption and, not least, ourselves. But we've also learned a lot about the brain. Some of you will know the influential book on trauma written by, I hope I pronounce his name right, Basil Vanderkolk. It has a powerful title. It's been an influential book. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Over the last decade of parenting four adopted children, Katie and I have certainly learned that the body keeps the score. That traumatic events in a child's life 
Things like abandonment, emotional or physical abuse, neglect, these events scar the body quite literally by doing things to the brain, damaging the brain, it's firing, it's wiring, it's integration, the integration of the brain. Neuroscientists now tell us that brains can indeed be scarred, that the body does indeed keep the score, or to be more precise, that the brain keeps the score. Because the brain holds on to the trauma of the past. It's been marked quite literally, physically, tangibly. The experience of trauma, the traumatic experience, is embedded in the circuitry of the brain. Perhaps not as explicit memory, that is to say, you can't recall images of the traumatic event, but as what neuroscientists call implicit memory, which is the emotional coding attached to the experience. Even if you can't recall the image or a picture of the event, the specific event, it is embedded in the circuitry of the brain stored as implicit memory. Check it out. The kind of memory you re-experience emotionally, even though there are no images in your mind to signal to you, oh, that's because of the trauma. But you are emotionally reacting because of the trauma stored in your brain, as it were. And so the child who's experienced trauma in his or her life carries those memories, bears those scars in his or her body, in his or her brain, and the memories, whether they're explicit or implicit, affect everything about the child. Attitudes, actions, emotions, reactions, mood, and all the rest. And here's the really tricky thing. In order to survive trauma, human beings have developed an ingenious yet costly way of coping with an experience of trauma. You know how we survive trauma that is ingenious and yet costly. What the human body has developed the capacity to do is to sever the mind from the body so that you can survive and even try to thrive in the mind, cut off from the body. Why cut off from the body? Because that's where all of the pain is stored. So you, as it were, live up in your head. You live a very disintegrated life. Hey, everybody, just a quick note about a new giveaway that we're currently sponsoring here at the Center for Pastor Theologians. We're partnering with InterVarsity Press to give away a complete 46-volume set of the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which is a phenomenal series that seeks to help Christian leaders, scholars, pastors understand the Bible better by exploring key issues in biblical theology. The series is edited by D.A. Carson, and it aims to instruct, edify, and interact with current biblical scholarship. This would be just a phenomenal addition to any pastor theologian's research library. And honestly, I'm a little sad that I'm ineligible to enter the giveaway because I work here. Uh, anyway, if you would like to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is go to pastortheologians.com giveaway and enter your name and email in the form on that page. Once you do that, you can also head over to our Twitter and Facebook pages where we 
announce the giveaway and retweet, share, or tag friends in the posts that we put on there announcing this giveaway of the New Studies in Biblical Theology. Any interaction with the giveaway posts on social media will count as bonus entries when we do the drawing for the prize a little later this year. Once again, the address to sign up for this giveaway is pastortheologians.com slash giveaway. Today on the show, we have a talk from our CPT conference in 2018 from our own Dr. Todd Wilson entitled The Integrated Pastor. Let's get right back into it. Now think about spiritual formation of a child in that context. As parents, Katie and I have had to realize that to spiritually form our children, especially our adopted children with their backgrounds... We couldn't simply, listen to me, couldn't simply put pressure on their wills to compel them to do the right thing. You have to step back and take a look, not just, take a serious look, not just at their bodies, but at their brains. We had to realize that there is going to be no real lasting spiritual formation without deep psychological healing, the healing of the brain, real new neural networks created through kindness and care and compassion. You know what else Katie and I have realized? That in this fallen world, we've all been traumatized. We've all been traumatized. Different ways, and to different degrees. But we all have been roughed up by this abusive world. Each of us has had to endure a certain kind of abuse or neglect or trauma. And therefore, all of us have had damage done to our bodies, to our brains, so that none of us is entirely whole. We're all a little bit disintegrated. Because for all of us, every one of us, this is the nature of the human condition. The body does indeed keep the score. And listen, while it may not be obvious on the surface of your life, where there may be layer upon layer of doctrinal faithfulness and moral development, if you look just underneath the surface, you will probably see the subterranean reality of psychological brokenness. And what does this brokenness look like? It looks like, I think, compulsions you can't control. Strong involuntary urges you wish weren't there. Fixations, obsessions, emotional reactivity to certain kind of events where you ask yourself after it happens, where did that come from? These, I think, are the telltale signs that all is not well in your body and with your brain. We're all familiar with that famous passage in Romans chapter 12 where Paul calls on Christians to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but but to be, he says, transformed by the renewal of your mind, your noose. I wonder if the healing of the brain is at least part of what Scripture has in mind in that verse, the renewal of the noose, not just the mind in some dualistic sense, but the body and the brain, the whole psychosomatic unity we call the person, mind, will, body, and brain, the renewal of the whole person. There's a third and final step I think we should take if we're going to move from a, toward a more integrated approach to spiritual formation. It is the third step. It is the last I, I will mention, but it, I think is the most important, and I will try to be brief here. 
And it is this, we need to take more seriously interpersonal communion. If we're gonna move towards a more integrated spiritual formation, we need to take more seriously interpersonal communion. When we take bodies seriously, we will take brains seriously. And when we take brains seriously as embodied and embedded realities, then we will, I believe, naturally want to take interpersonal communion seriously. What do I mean by interpersonal communion? I mean quite literally the meeting of minds, or if you will, the bonding of brains. The experience of not just knowing, but of being known by another mind, by another person. You see, when you have a dualistic understanding of the human person, you will naturally prioritize, listen, the mind over the body, and then you will inevitably put the emphasis on knowing over being known. Being known is a very bodily experience. Knowing, instead of being known, is, I think, a fair description of many evangelical approaches to spiritual formation, where the emphasis is upon knowing rather than being known, or almost to the exclusion of being known. But what Christians for centuries have understood very intuitively, and what a new generation of neuroscientists are helping us see is this, that profound personal transformation comes about, not so much from knowing, but from being known. Think about it. Why is it that Alcoholics Anonymous is by far and away the most successful behavioral change program to have ever graced the face of planet Earth? Why is it? I think it's because every meeting begins the same way. Hi, I'm Todd. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Todd. The whole premise to entering into that gathering of people is that you will reveal who you are, perhaps for the first time, honestly, in your life, and be known for who you are. And there is something powerfully transformative about Something miraculous, the neuroscientists tell us, happens when two minds empathetically meet. And neuroscientists have the data now to back this up. Something does indeed happen inside your brain when when you know that you are being known by someone else. New neural networks are being created. New synapses are firing and wiring. And your brain is literally being changed as you experience being known by another person. Psychiatrist Dan Siegel calls this the experience of feeling felt. It's a great expression. Feeling felt. So what happens when you sense that your internal world inside of your head is being entered into by another person? When that person shares with you what's shares in in the experience with you of what's going on inside your mind. We call it empathy. And it's at the heart of interpersonal communion, and it is the key, I think, to powerful personal transformation and, I would argue, spiritual formation, not just knowing, but being known. I like the way Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson puts it. He writes this in his book, The Anatomy of the Soul, which is a marvelous book, by the way. He says this, quote, the process of being known is the vessel in which our lives are kneaded and molded, lanced and sutured confronted and comforted, 
bringing God's new creation closer to its fullness in preparation for the return of the king. You know, when we talk about spiritual formation, we are ultimately talking about the process whereby a person moves toward maturity in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual formation is, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, all about becoming, the expression there is, complete in Christ. Him we proclaim, Paul writes, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. You might say then that the telos or goal of spiritual formation is to be teleos or complete in Christ. And the burden of this talk has been simply to say that we will have a hard time getting to this telos, teleos in Christ, complete in Christ, without taking more seriously the body, without taking more seriously the brain, and without taking more seriously interpersonal communion, not just knowing but being known, and not just by one another, but by our Lord and maker, Jesus Christ himself. And so as scripture so beautifully puts it, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so we take heart, learn to walk by faith, leaning into the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins and the power of God's Spirit, for we now see in a mere dimly, Scripture says, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. Amen? Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.